You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media, your one-stop shop for truly independent conservative news and views. And yes, this is your drugged-up host here Monday morning. I could barely function over the weekend. I know I took a long weekend off. Sorry about that. Um, But it has been the worst of all allergy seasons, those poisonous oak tree stuff falling off, um, kind of the prelude to those big leaves that come in. And, oh, they are just poison for me. I actually had to cancel a radio hits this morning because before 11 o'clock, I can't even talk. Uh, It's it's that bad. So, um, yeah, really toughening it out this week. Uh, Lots of missed news, and I'm going to try to capture them on tomorrow's show. We do have two good articles out today we'll link to in show notes. More stuff going on on at the border. But for today, I want to do something a little different. Want to do something special. It is, by the way, our 400th broadcast. And I've always told you our goal here is to speak above the rancor of politics, to speak above the soap opera, um, all the petty stuff going on, and really delve into what matters, particularly to sovereignty, security, our civil society, national defense. It's really been an honor to spend the last year going through all of the angles of immigration, border, cartels, terrorism, drugs, crime, interior enforcement, uh, the interplay of all those things together because you really do need to understand them together. And you know, after this, this uh, year or so, you guys are really the most educated audience on this issue. But no full discussion of the border is complete until you really speak about our other borders. Now, you might be wondering, well, what are our other borders? Well, we have a southwest border we always talk about. But truly, we have thousands upon thousands of miles of the northern border with Canada and the coastlines on each side. And I think we've taken for granted over the years that you know it kind of just keeps itself safe. To the extent we have military issues, we focus overseas – we haven't been attacked formally on our mainland since uh, the War of uh, 1812. And, uh, you know, God, God, God bless us for our two oceans. The reality is that, you know, we have a wide open border. 90 whatever percent of our resources obviously are focused on our southwest border for obvious reasons. What is going on in the other parts of our border, our maritime borders, our northern border? And I felt I'd bring on a special guest today, Chief Jason Owens. He is the chief patrol agent of the Holton sector in Maine. That's the entirety of Maine. Uh, But he also was, until recently, the acting chief patrol agent of Laredo, Texas. He was in El Centro in California. He was also in another border sector in the north and Grand Forks in North Dakota. So he really does have a strong background, both the northern and southern border. Um, Over 22 years of experience in Border Patrol, he was um, involved in BORTAC, the 
a special operations division as well, worked in D.C., really a full spectrum of border operations. And I wanted to bring him on to give us a tour, a virtual tour, of what the northern border is like. Hey, Chief Owens, are you on the line? Daniel, I'm here. Good to talk to you. No, really honored to have you here and glad you were able to make time. Just to kind of set the table here, um, I, I want to play the role of Chief Owens. If I'm Chief Owens, I'm you, and this time last year, you were down south. You're at the Laredo border. And if I wake up every day, if I'm in the Laredo sector, well, I guess I'm thinking about a lot of illegal immigration, and I'm thinking about really bad dudes in the form of the Mexican cartels, particularly Nuevo Laredo. You got the factions of the Zetas and the Gulf Cartel. You got the drugs, all sorts of stuff going on to keep you busy. But a year later, you know, last couple of months, you've been in Maine, chief uh, patrol agent of a northern border sector. Yeah, I, I just got brand new numbers from CBP, and they show that 11 people, just 11 people have been apprehended in the Holton sector this this year. What are kind of the concerns? What, you know, when you wake up in the morning, what do you feel is your primary job about keeping America safe? Well, first off, uh, it, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, addressing this particular part of the issue and that uh, we look at border security holistically. We don't just look at it from the, uh, from the southwest border. We look at it uh, as an agency, as CBP, as the U.S. Border Patrol, for the entirety of the country, to include uh, Puerto Rico. We have uh, thousands of miles of coast, as you said, and we have some 5,500 miles of northern border with Canada, if you count Alaska. And one of the fascinating aspects of this job is uh, the diversity that you encounter of the, of the mission. So one of the ways that we keep ourselves well-rounded and, and uh, as able as possible is we move around. We go to the uh, uh, southwest border. We go to the northern border. We'll operate on the coast. We'll be at headquarters because no matter where you go, it's just a little bit different. The mission remains the same, but the way that you accomplish it, your partners, the dynamics of the uh, of the area of operation, they're all just a little bit different, and it's it's they present their own unique challenges. So as you alluded to on the southwest border, yeah, it's uh, it's it's heavy volume. It's twenty four seven. It's nonstop action. And there's a lot of focus and the attention and the spotlight being placed there, as well as a lot of the resources uh, for the agency as a whole. When you're up on the northern border, it's it's much different. And so for us, it really comes down to uh, a vulnerability issue. You see just how open the border is, both on the coast and on the on the border with Canada. Uh, you see how many resources that we don't have. You see the force multipliers that we don't have up here that we do have on the southwest border. And then you see the threat that we're faced with. You see the folks that uh, that are able to exploit this area by way of Canada, the coast, and they typically present a much more significant threat in terms of what their intent is. And so while we don't have that volume, what keeps me up at night as the chief of a northern border sector now is, number one, first and foremost, the safety of my men and women that are out there doing the job because there's very little backup. It's very remote, uh, dangerous terrain that they're working in. But also the threat that such a vulnerability represents to the people of this country. And that is, I like to say, a quality versus quantity. We may not have thousands of people coming across, but the people that we typically encounter can be causes for great concern. They can have uh, ties to countries with terrorist nexus. They can be criminal aliens. They can be narcotic smugglers. All of these people that, uh, that can and do have bad intent to hurt this country and its society. 
Sure. So, so I guess just to start off here, and I would encourage listeners as you're listening to pull up a map of Maine just so you could see, you know, what we're talking about. Um, I want to get to the coastal border a little later, but to start off with the land border. So it's a tremendous amount of land there, kind of east, uh, north, west. It's all over. You're enveloped by by Canada there. Um, the American people obviously understand the reason why you know we put almost all of our resources in the south is very clear. Mexico is not nearly the stable country that Canada is, and therefore you're going to have more of the migrants as well as the you know, criminal organized cartel activity where they operate openly. You know, they certainly operate openly uh, in the northern frontier in Mexico. You've seen that in your time there. What do you have in terms of threats of smugglers um, in the northern border? Because I was surprised recently. I saw a press release from Fort Covington, a sector or two over from you in New York, where two Italians were arrested and it referenced a Spanish smuggler. And I, I said to myself, "Wow, that's that's surprising." You know, I would think Canada would clamp down on that, or you know. So you have smuggling networks up there. So what we generally have up here in Maine, and first off, uh, kind of go back to one of the points you touched on. So uh, the state of Maine, which is the uh, the area that I'm responsible for, just the land border. You know, take away the coast, but just the land border. We have 611 miles of border with uh, with Canada. That's land border and, and riverine border. And we do that uh, with about 250, 300 uh, agents on patrol. Uh, compare that to Laredo, where I just came from, where we had 170 miles of border, but I had 2,000. I had 2,000 wow. employees at that sector. So you start to see just the difference that, uh, that, that that number means in terms of how we conduct our operations and how important our partnerships are, particularly with RCMP in Canada and, and our, our local law enforcement. But when you have an environment like that, I would say that the need for an organized, sophisticated smuggling network is, is probably not as apparent as it would be for area that uh, we have more uh, more of a tactical advantage. So what you have is you have families and individuals that have uh, long-standing roots in the, in the smuggling community that uh, uh, they'll smuggle whoever in what area through areas that they that they uh, that they have good knowledge of that they have uh, subject matter expertise over. And what we see in terms of uh, particularly special interest aliens that are coming across from Canada. We'll see uh, social media and networks uh, that that attract them to come over. They'll they'll uh, they'll put out in their internal networks that uh, you can come to this location and you can cross through here and it's it's relatively safe. And they have people that are in these areas that are from their home countries that can help facilitate it. So it's more of a network, but not so much a, a cartel that you would see down in the uh, on the southwest border with Mexico. So that, that that's interesting to know that at least at some organized level there is um, smuggling going on, and uh, you mentioned quality over quantity. So obviously, you know, I'm just looking at the latest numbers for the first six months of the fiscal year. So you know, we've apprehended, um, gosh, what is it? You know, close to 360 thousand at our southern border, 361 thousand at our northern border. We've apprehended 2171. It's on pace for about you know forty two, forty three hundred, roughly what last year was, which is a lot more than FY twenty seventeen, which is about three thousand. Um, is that uptick? Is that primarily from Mexicans, Central Americans, or is that from the special interest aliens, you know, Middle East or or elsewhere? No, we have seen uh, an uptick for uh, for 
uh, illegal aliens from the Northern Triangle countries and from Mexico as well that are that are trying to exploit the Canadian border. And I would I would say one point that's important to remember is that that is what we know of. That's uh, given the vulnerabilities that exist along our northern border and along our coastal border, we can only speak to what we what we catch, what we can actually put hands on. And so while I don't think the volume is anywhere near, and, and I don't think anybody does, uh, what we see on the, on the southwest border with Mexico, you also have to keep in mind that uh, how much of that are we actually seeing that's, uh, that's exploiting that very porous border with, with Canada? Wow. That, 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 that's a big news you're making here, Chief, because... Um... You know, I know in the past on the South, they've said apprehension rates they predicted, and it was hard to predict, but maybe 40, 50 percent. I think now there's reason to believe both between the um, just massive infrastructure and the cameras and surveillance, as well as the fact that just strategically, this is a lot more lawfare in terms of them trying to exploit different policies. So they're openly surrendering. Now, obviously, you do have the quality problem of those not surrendering, even at the southern border. But I think there's a, you know, from people I've spoken to, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's a lot of confidence that the overwhelming majority are being caught. Um, But again, you know, even a minority of hundreds of thousands is a lot of problematic people. But you're saying that, you know, if we catch, let's say, 4,200 at the northern border, is it likely that, the number that actually evaded is exponentially higher. Well, that's the question. Uh, you know, <laughs> we would like to think that we're uh, that we're doing a, a great job. Our men and women are out there doing the best that they can with what they have. But at the end of the day, you don't know what you don't know. And until you have that uh, that situational awareness, until you have that uh, that ability to have a certainty of detection and a certainty of arrest anywhere along the border, then all we can really do is give our best educated guess as to uh, how good a job we're doing and. That's why getting that uh, infrastructure and technology that we're asking for is so very important, not just on the uh, on the southern border, but everywhere. And that's why having those men and women out on patrol and having the right number of them out on patrol, both from a safety standpoint and from a border security standpoint, is so very critical. Because at the end of the day, our mission is an important one. We're charged with keeping this country and its people safe. And it's hard to do whenever you have those vulnerabilities that can be exploited by the adversary. Because that, that's what I find very scary, that it seems like even since you joined the, the Border Patrol, obviously we've really beefed things up at the southern border um, in terms of at least our ability to know what's go- coming over. Uh, I, I found the camera uh, angles to be amazing, what, what CBP and Yuma or um, uh, Tucson Sector put out last week with these five armed smugglers with AK-47s, um, and we were able to see that. Is it right to assume, correct to assume that there's many parts of the northern border where theoretically you could have that going on and we wouldn't necessarily see that on on camera? Yes, there, there's huge portions of the border, uh, and and not just on the northern border, but the the coast and and on the on the southwest border as well that that don't have uh, the kind of coverage that I think the American people would expect, and that that's why the men and women of CBP and the and the Border Patrol are are asking for that. It's. Uh, in order for us to be able to interdict the illicit traffic, we have to first know that it's coming across. We have to first know that it's there. Those are things that we term to be force multipliers that actually give our agents and officers out in the field the tactical advantage that helps them to stay safe and it helps them to do their job better. And that comes in all forms. That comes in forms of, of, of camera and other detection equipment. That comes in the form of physical barriers. That comes in the form of, of roads and accesses that allow us to go on patrol and respond to the traffic. 
and we can't forget the importance of having those uh, those partnerships because uh, everybody's mission. You know, I, I'll give you for example Texas and then up here in Maine, uh, it overlaps uh, from a law enforcement law enforcement perspective, and and it has a synergistic effect on each other's mission. So by having uh, us out there and, and able to back up our uh, fellow law enforcement officers, it helps their mission, and by them being out there participating in operations like Stone Garden. Uh, that helps uh, us do our job better. So everything and anything that we have is a force multiplier that helps us do our job better, helps to make this country more safe. How long is the northern border? Just Did you have that number offhand? So it's uh, it's close to, if you count the Alaska border as well, it's close to 5,500 miles. So <laughs> if you look at uh, the U.S. border with Mexico, is just under 2,000 miles. Without taking the coast into consideration, you're already at about 7,500 miles of border. Now, you're talking about the U.S. Border Patrol responsible for patrolling for illicit traffic between the ports of entry. That makes that number of 20,000 men and women out there on patrol 24-7 seem a lot less significant. And do you have a rough estimate you could share in terms of how many agents are on the northern border? Uh, between 2,000 and 2,300 is is. A good a good estimate is what uh, we typically try to target up here. Wow, I'm I'm trying to do the math offhand here. Um, that is, oh my gosh, uh, that's like one agent per three miles. Uh, well, so- and and Daniel also take into account that uh, you're talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So when you factor in oh, vacation, yeah. sick leave, days off, uh, it, it it starts to deteriorate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just at any given hour, it's going to be much less than one agent every three miles for sure. Um, You know, that that was just the macro math. But yeah, that's not the real world, as you as you mentioned. Let's let's not forget, Daniel, we we also are like everybody else. We are deploying uh, a lot of our assets down to the southwest border to help out with the ongoing humanitarian security crisis that they're facing right now. So this is how this crisis on the border impacts everybody in the country. It impacts people up here in Maine because we have sent anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of our workforce down on uh, TDY to help out on the southwest border. So that's 10 to 15 percent of our workforce that is not patrolling the border up here. They're down there. And that makes this area appear more vulnerable. So just like we're seeing that in the frontiers of the southwest border, um, you know, if you're a cartel guy, drug runner, gang member, SIA who otherwise wouldn't be able to get in, you're going to go in where the border agents are tied down. Likewise, the northern border is even more uh, open. Um, you know, if I'm an Iranian uh, operative, if I'm an operative for a terror group, um, you know, this is certainly wide open. Have you caught any high? Uh, well, I don't want to say high profile, but you know, those that you suspect. Um, are tied to terrorism recently in the northern border? Well, in the last in the last few years, just up here in the Holton sector alone, we've caught uh, a few individuals that were of significant concern to us. We had one that's uh, an alleged Rwandan war criminal that uh, that is on trial right now in, in Boston. We've had uh, uh, individuals that had uh, potential ties to Hamas. Uh, you have to remember that... Uh, you know, there's a significant refugee population up in uh, in Canada as well from uh, Middle Eastern countries such as Syria. Uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of individuals up there. And is is it reasonable to assume that uh, that uh, a number of them potentially have bad intent towards uh, our country and, and and our people? I think that's uh, that's wow. a very that's a very reasonable assumption, and that's something that as law enforcement officers we have to be on guard for at all times. And when we look at the landscape and just how vulnerable the border is, it becomes cause for concern whenever the manpower that's sorely needed up here has to be redirected 
down to the southwest border to uh, to do things like hospital watch and processing and 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 you heard one of my fellow chiefs from El Paso talking about uh, mixing formula and changing diapers. Those are agents that are not out on patrol, not conducting law enforcement operations because of this crisis on the border. That that that's really scary. You just implanted a thought in my mind. I was thinking, um, you know, because one of the things that has changed. Obviously, we have uh, just the record number of of asylum requests. But in terms of the refugee program proper, where we actually bring them in in a controlled fashion, so that has been turned off to a trickle um, the last two years under this administration. I believe last year was something like three, 4,000 we brought in down from, you know, the baseline number was always 70,000. Obama administration jacked it up to about 110,000. Uh, so, the, you know, we haven't been bringing them in, and instead Canada has been bringing them in a lot. So all those that might have wanted to come here from volatile countries – um, it makes a lot of sense. And, and that's what I wanted to ask you. Is there any concern about this current administration in Canada, their policies concerning visas? Um, I'm seeing Mexicans are able to fly there easier now and get visas. Do you have any concerns about their visa policies that could put strain on the northern border? Well, one of the great things about working up on the northern border is that we have an outstanding relationship with the government of Canada, particularly the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And we actually have a a very strong working relationship uh, with respect to border security because there are uh, individuals trying to uh, enter Canada from the United States illegally as well as uh, into the United States from Canada. So it's sure. it's more of a two-way border that uh, it's, it's a little different dynamic than what we see down on the on the southern border. And one of the other issues that we have is, uh, for example, a citizen of Canada, they don't have to have a visa necessarily to come into the United States. So that if a person does exploit the immigration policies uh, in Canada and becomes a citizen, then their ability to enter into the United States just became much, much easier. Wow. That that, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And uh, you, you referenced the two-way street. Um, what I find, found scary, there was this uh, Somali named Abdullah, Abdullah Hassan Sharif. Um, somehow made his way to Tijuana across the California border. So this is the first case I know of this. It was a double border uh, incident, came across California border, um, and then he went on to carry an ISIS flag while conducting two, um, two September, what was it, September 30, 2017, vehicle ramming attacks in Edmonton in Alberta. Uh, five people were injured in those attacks. And I believe that guy went across the northern border. So he first came across the southern, then the northern border. So it definitely makes sense. And I was just thinking it would, um, it would be, it's probably refreshing after your years of work in the south, where you're like, all right, is that a Sedena guy, Mexican military? Is that a cartel guy? Is is that is it a rogue element of the Mexican military? And you never know. Whereas here, you kind of know what you're dealing with, and. Um, you know, it's obviously a stable government. So it is from a standpoint that, uh, you know, I will say first and foremost, we, we actually have, most people don't realize, a, a very good re- uh, working relationship with uh, the government of Mexico resources, particularly at the, at the ground level. We, we did mirror operations a lot with Sedena. We did mirror operations with Samar, uh, you know, a lot. And they, uh, where they could be effective, they, they absolutely were. The problem that they had was that uh, they had cartel violence to deal with. So where we're talking about uh, you know, stopping a group from leaving their country and coming into our country, well, having them pull away from a gun battle in downtown, uh, you know, uh, downtown Nuevo Laredo 
to uh, to come respond to that. You know, they have to prioritize as well. So I think that it wasn't that the desire wasn't always there. It's just that they were stretched from a capacity issue as well. RC uh, RCMP, same thing. They have a they have a 5,500 mile uh, border as well, and. The RCMP does uh, does law enforcement work as well, so they don't have 100% of their assets devoted to uh, to border security, and and what they do have is is probably uh, nowhere near adequate enough to cover that 5,500 miles of border uh, in the same sense that ours isn't. So it's uh, it's one of those situations where you take everything into account and you look at who has the advantage. Is it the is it the criminal? Or is it the law enforcement the, that's charged with keeping everybody safe? And I think the question that everybody needs to ask themselves is, uh, are we satisfied with the, uh, with the current situation the way it is, or do we need to give more in the way of this uh, personnel technology infrastructure to make sure that our law enforcement officials have that advantage so that the odds are they're going to win and not the bad guys? So I just saw this case in the news, the Rwandan war criminal that was on trial, um, Gene Leonard Tiganya. He was found guilty on five accounts. This is five counts of um, immigration fraud and perjury in Massachusetts. This was a couple of weeks ago. He illegally entered in 2014 and later applied for asylum. Are you finding some of this asylum fraud in the north like we're seeing in the south? So we'll see this anywhere and everywhere that uh, that people think they can take advantage of it. It's not an exclusive uh, tactic or trend to the southwest border. It's it's anywhere somebody thinks that they can take advantage of outdated laws that uh, that we need Congress to change. If you look right now, uh, you, you may mention the fact that I uh, that I was in uh, California back in the '90s. Uh, what we saw then was uh, a large number of single adults that were coming in for economic reasons, and they would send uh, remittances, uh, payments back home to their families who stayed behind. And so uh, a lot of them came from Mexico, some from Central America, and we had a, a much more lenient uh, uh, processing policy where mo- much of them were granted a voluntary return, and they would try several times to enter and, uh, until they ultimately were successful or, or gave up. Well, now, because this, uh, this outdated law has been discovered, instead of leaving their families back home, they're bringing them with them along on this, uh, this, this perilous journey that's, uh, that's absolutely dangerous from the moment they leave their, 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 their home. And now they're showing up as family units, and they don't have to evade capture. So all they do is simply turn themselves in, and uh, and the process has been uh, overwhelmed such that they're not going to be detained. They're going to be released and given a uh, an immigration court hearing that's going to be, in many cases, years uh, down the road, if they decide to show up at all. And then uh, you know what are they doing in the meantime? Well, they're they're doing whatever it is that they want to do. And, and is it reasonable to assume that not all of them have good intent towards uh, this country and its people? No, absolutely. We've certainly chronicled here a lot of criminal cases um, or drunk driving at the very least, which certainly could be deadly and was in the case of a mobile Alabama teacher who was killed by one of the Central Americans who was released in Arizona. So is it safe to say that still a majority of those that you guys deal with are not um, surrendering. They're not coming with the intent to surrender. They're evading capture. Correct. Up on the northern border, we do not see that uh, as prevalently as you do down the southwest border. It's uh, it's much more the folks that uh, have the means 
to come in this way, and they typically have much more to hide. They're going to be the criminal aliens. They're going to be the narcotic smugglers. They're going to be the people, uh, special interest aliens from countries with a potential terrorist nexus. They have every motivation and desire to evade capture. And so uh, they're going to come up here and do it because they think they have the best chance of success. The chief patrol agent in the Rio Grande sector testified uh, before the Senate Homeland Security Committee, this was a couple of weeks ago, that they have caught people from over 50 countries in the Rio Grande Valley just this fiscal year. I'm assuming that's at least as true. It's at least that number where you guys are. And that's uh, and that's nothing new, Daniel. That's uh, every single year the Border Patrol and CBP encounters people from dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. It's not just uh, the country of Mexico and Northern Triangle. It is absolutely every year we encounter people from countries all over the world and in varying quantities. And the problem is, is that what we're seeing now is an uptick in the overall volume that's, that's putting a tremendous strain on our system and, and keeping us from focusing our efforts on enforcing the laws and keeping out those that, uh, that pose a significant threat to our country. No, that, may, that makes a lot of sense. Again, I, I mean, if I'm a terrorist, if I'm working for an enemy country, uh, you're not going to come over with an Air Force or a Navy or an Army. We, we you know, we're, we're, that, we're certainly uh, protected. We have that deterrent. But if I were them and looking at what's going on in our southern border and the resources, it seems like this would be a prime time to get in operatives, which uh, is certainly very scary. Now, the guys you do catch, I'm assuming you just, you know, there's no complications. You just put them next to removal. Or or we'll actually prosecute them for a reentry after deportation. As you know, 1326, if we can yep. get them uh, some, some consequence. The idea behind any law enforcement operation is to ensure that there's a consequence for the action. And that takes away the motivation for the person to commit the crime in the first place. When you have no motivation to not break the law, uh, then the person's going to keep on breaking the law. And that, that unfortunately, I think, is is uh, highlighted by what we're seeing on the uh, on the border right now. I'd, you know that uh, this fiscal year alone, we've already caught uh, over 2,200 criminal aliens. You know, almost 500 of them were, uh, were gang members. You know, 220-some-odd were MS-13 members. Uh, we've had almost 2,000 removable aliens that were wanted by law enforcement for differing crimes here in the country, from, from murder to rape to narcotics trafficking, you name it. So when you look at those numbers compared to the overall numbers that are being encountered, uh, it may seem like a smaller percentage, but then you have to ask yourself, how many is enough? How many is too many? Is is the fact that we have 2,200 criminal aliens being uh, being apprehended crossing our border illegally, is that cause for concern? I think if you ask most law enforcement officers, the answer is going to be yes. Sure. And then, of course, when you're dealing with criminal elements who have Interpol hits or a record here that they don't want to get caught, certainly strategically, they're going to work with the smugglers and cartels to get in uh, while our agents are tied down. So if we catch that many, we apprehend 2,200. Who knows how many we're not apprehending? And I think you know all these stories we chronicle every day on the interior um, drunk driving, drugs, murder, rape, you name it, uh, lots of child molestation. Uh, these are people that were previously deported and at some point came back in, and we don't know when and where. And that's that's kind of the point. So, gosh, who knows if they even came to the northern border. Um, the last time, I, I want to move on to the maritime stuff, but but before that, just what, what, what kind of scares me just looking at this full picture is that let's say we clamp down on the southern border but we didn't change the policies. In other words, if we basically said, hey, you come with a kid, you're here to stay for whatever reason, 
Are you concerned that even if we were to build a wall from Brownsville to San Diego, they would just fly into Canada and start doing it all over again from the north? And there's no way we're ever going to get the resources for something like that for you know five thousand miles. Well, I think history uh, proves the concept that you're discussing. It's actually, if you look back uh, and go back to the '90s, just during my career, when I uh, first came into the Border Patrol, the area of impact was San Diego, San Diego sector. That was what was getting hit the hardest and thousands upon thousands every year were coming in in that one area. And Operation Gatekeeper came into fruition and it uh, had the balloon effect where it actually pushed traffic uh, out of San San Diego, but to a different area. It didn't stop coming. It actually went to a different area. So it started pushing over to the east into El Centro, into Yuma and El Paso. And so they uh, expanded the operations and and clamped down there and the balloon effect took took over again. And then you had two and so for much of the 2000s, you had Tucson. And then we flooded uh, personnel, technology, and infrastructure into Tucson. And, and guess what? That balloon got squeezed and it went to the Rio Grande Valley. And then here it sits right now. So if you shut down the entirety of the southwest border, is it uh, probable or possible that you're going to have uh, other border areas that are going to be impacted by it? I think history proves that, absolutely. You're fighting a, a, a two-front battle here. Number one is the security side, and number two is the policy side. If you have uh, uh, the, the border security with the physical barrier and you have the situational awareness and the, and the men and women out there on patrol to interdict, you're going to help keep the, the bad people from coming in, the criminal aliens and narcotic smugglers and the people with the potential terrorist ties. But those that are uh, exploiting the outdated uh, asylum laws they're not going to stop because a physical barrier will not help. And that's the areas that yeah. we need Congress to act. We need Congress to act to, to change those laws, to, uh, to amend the Flores Reno, because, yeah, if you, don't, if you don't take away those drivers, if you don't take away that motivation, then that particular population of the illegal immigration is going to keep coming. Sure. So that, that, that's an interesting point, the fact that um, the lawfare really does affect the northern, northern border because – it's just obvious we're never going to be able to divert that degree of resources to the northern border. And uh, again, not that they're working f- you know, on the southern border because we go and bring them from behind the fence anyway, um, you know, pursuant to those policies that we abide by. So certainly in the northern border, if you have a government in Canada over time that doesn't necessarily uh, agree with our immigration priorities and they take a different view on immigration – and they allow them to come in under looser laws uh, with visas, without visas, then certainly that will be a threat. You know, right now it's quality, which is bad enough, but you know, eventually it could get into quantity. Um, so there's there's definitely a lot of concern there. In terms of just the topography, geography, what does the international border look like there? We have a lot of fencing at the southern border. We have the Rio Grande River in Texas, other areas that's desert. Is there any delineation there, any demarcation? What does it look like at the border? So that's a, that's a very good question. and uh, I'm going to uh, repeat my invitation to you to come up here and check it out for yourself. <laughs> and I, I'll give you the description. Uh, so, and, and I will caveat it by saying uh, you can hear all the descriptions you want, but, uh, but take the time to see it for yourself, both the southern border and the northern border. Uh, get to know what's going on. Follow the uh, the men and women that are that are out there on patrol, and get to know the environment uh, for what it is, uh, unfiltered. Because until you actually see it yourself, until you actually learn about it yourself, uh, the descriptions third hand really don't do it justice. But having said that, I'll tell you the uh, uh, up on the on the northern border, 
what you're going to find is it's very remote. It's actually, it's, it's a beautiful area, uh, most uh, everywhere along the Canadian border, but very, very remote, very uh, austere conditions in terms of uh, harsh weather, just like you have down on the southwest border, uh, only it's going to be in the reverse. So in the wintertime, you're going to have temperature extremes that go far below zero extremely deadly and very remote in terms of limited access. And we do not have, uh, by and large, physical barriers that, uh, that block the, uh, the U.S. border with Canada. What we do have is affectionately referred to as the slash, and that's a, uh, basically a swath cut through the wooded and forest areas along the northern border, uh, much like you'd see p- uh, pole lines running through uh, uh, rural areas of a county uh, you know, they cut away the, the, the vegetation and the brush to, to allow for the pole lines. That's what the slash looks like. And in many cases, that's it. That's the only uh, demarcation for where the U.S.-Canadian uh, border is. Some places there are the, uh, the, the monuments uh, spaced out. In other places, there may be a berm. But really no impedance and denial to speak of, no physical barrier uh, that, would, that would stop any illicit traffic from coming across. You also have ports of entry up here that uh, that are not 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They are only during uh, business hours or a modified schedule. And whenever the officers are not there conducting uh, inspections, they simply close a gate and they're largely left unmanned. And so you don't have the 24/7 operations at the port of entry. So you may have roadways that uh, are obstructed by nothing more than a cone or an arm that that, that drops whenever it's not uh, in operation. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're saying that at the po- point at the ports, there's places you don't even have people. What you know at night or whenever. So, so what happens if someone drives over? So we have the surveillance equipment, and it uh, it when one of the camera operators sees the uh, the vehicle come across, they call the U.S. Border Patrol in that respective sector or station, and an agent out on patrol will respond. Wow, I mean that is again very few people to cover a lot of um a lot of miles there. To move on to the maritime borders, you know, I know we're running out of time here. Um, you know, you, you know, a lot of people who don't live there don't think of it. You think of, you know, the northern border with Canada, but obviously, is a large uh, maritime border in general. We have a large maritime border everywhere. We got the Atlantic, we got the Gulf, we got the Pacific. Um, you know, if someone wants to come, do us harm, or you have the. Colombian Mexican cartels with their narco subs, uh, bring in drugs, bring in bad guys. I was always confused who who's responsible for dealing with that. Is that Border Patrol NORAD under DOD? Is that CBP's Air Marine? Uh, do do you deal with the maritime border at all? So the short answer is yes. Everybody has a stake. Everybody has skin in the game. And so you'll have the U.S. Coast Guard. You have the CPP Air and Marine Operations. You have the U.S. Border Patrol. And then, of course, you have Department of Defense that has their uh, their piece of it uh, further out. But uh, I'll speak to my area just in the state of Maine. If you look at the coast as a crow flies, it's about 300 miles. But by the time you take into account all the inlets and coves and jags and zigs and zags, it's actually closer to uh, 3,500 miles. So that's 3,500 miles of coast just in the state of Maine if you were to stretch it out into one long straight line, which I think is, uh, is, is very relevant because if you look at uh, trying to patrol that, trying to secure it, especially out on vessels, much less out on, uh, on land driving, which most of it's inaccessible, that starts to paint a picture for just how daunting a task it is. So for our part, what we have up here, the U.S. Coast Guard, 
they also have a very large search and rescue operation that uh, that, that you know, coincides with the fishing, uh, commercial fishing that takes place up here. So they do not and cannot dedicate all of their resources to the law enforcement mission. So that leaves uh, us and that leaves some of our state and locals to uh, to patrol that vast coast. So that's another extensive vulnerability that exists, and it's not uh, it's not unique to the state of Maine. It's everywhere that has coastal uh, a coastal border. The operations are impacted, uh, you know, by weather, by the by the capabilities of the vessels that we're out on patrol in. But it's uh, it's another one of those situations where you have to ask yourself, who has the advantage here? Is it the adversary? Is it the bad guys? Or is it the law enforcement professionals charged with keeping you safe? When you look at 3,500 miles just in the state of Maine, and you look at the number of men and women I said were already out on patrol that already have 611 miles of land border to patrol, then you start to, to frame up just how overwhelmed we are. Well, 3,500 miles linear is like from New York to California. Um, and that's that's just Maine's coast when you add in all the coves there. So have you seen evidence of, of issues? I mean, I know obviously for, for a long time, if you'd go to the Gulf Coast, Florida, certainly there's drug activity, um, you know, whether it's narco subs or conventional boats. Uh, but do, do you get that that far nor- north, you know, in Maine? So we know that there's a uh, there's a, a corridor that comes up from the Caribbean that goes up towards uh, Nova Scotia and Canada, and uh, that's right next door to uh, uh, to the state of Maine and, and its coast. And is it reasonable to assume that uh, some of that traffic takes a left turn every once in a while and hits our coast? Well, I think that's that's absolutely reasonable. Right now, it's. Uh, we don't know what we don't know. If uh, if we don't have sufficient situational awareness on that coast, if we don't have adequate personnel out on patrol, and I'm not just talking about the U.S. Border Patrol, I'm talking about your law enforcement, your Department of Homeland Security, just generally speaking, then we can't know for any certainty if that area is being exploited or not. And I think most people would seem to think that it is. Wow. We don't know what we don't know. Um, <laughs> that, that, that seems to be the problem. And and I think, you know, we've taken this for granted for so long, but the world has changed and there's a lot more danger and a lot, lot, lot of other fronts. And uh, I guess that's the question headed forward. You know, can we go on this long with so many miles of maritime and land borders with so little coverage without knowing what gets in and just assuming that, hey, if there's anything big, we'll know about it, we'll catch it, we'll catch it on radar, we'll catch it on sonar, we'll, you know, NORAD will get it. I mean, that was always my assumption. You know, I always figured, hey, you know, if there's an invading, if it's aircraft or, or you know, sea craft, NORAD would get it. Um, but you're saying that that's not necessarily true. Well, I think you have to ask yourself, number one, I think that uh, a lot of our uh, opinions or perspective are sometimes framed by what we see on TV. And <laughs> a lot of times it's not, it's not uh, necessarily true to life. But I think you have to ask yourself, uh, if they were not able to be successful, would the criminals still be attempting to conduct their illicit enterprise on a cross-border level? I, I think the fact that they continue to try, we continue to make seizures, we continue to make arrests, I think that speaks to the fact that they are still being successful. And that, I think, is a good gauge for should we be paying closer attention. And I think all of this stuff should inform the uh, the narrative that's going on right now, the, the overall border security discussion. You have to take into account it's a holistic approach. It's not just the southwest border. It's not just the northern border. It's not just the coast. When the subject matter experts, when the men and women that do this job every single day and have made a life out of doing this job are saying to you, the American people, we need these things, that this is a crisis, 
that this will help us. This is not helping us. It's coming from a good place. It's coming from experts that live and breathe this. It's coming from people who take pride in this job and who uh, the security of the American people in this country matter. You you mentioned a holistic approach, and I don't know how much you would want to comment on this, but looking at the full picture, to me, I thought the creation of the Department of Homeland Security was supposed to be all about what you just said, that you would have one department dedicated in a holistic fashion where you you know have a lot of synergy you work together to deal with everything threatening the homeland that that national security national defense starts with the homeland it was that recognition um for many many years you know we reaped the benefits of having peace so we didn't worry about the homeland it was more about hey iraq afghanistan you know, before that it was Vietnam, and we didn't focus so much on the homeland. Do you share a concern that I've expressed in this show the last number of weeks is that I feel that in some ways we've gone backwards. So, you know, before DHS, when we had the INS, it was almost as if they were everything. They were the Border Patrol, they were the detainers, they were the deporters, they were the adjudicators. Now you got Border Patrol, you got ICE, um, even under CBP, you got OFO at the at the ports, you got Air and Marine as separate from Border Patrol. You got, um, you know, ICE itself has HSI and ERO, which don't always get along. Uh, then you got the USCIS deals with asylum, not the Border Patrol, even though that's the frontline issue now in the Southwest. Then you have the adjudicators are an EOR in the Department of Justice. Do we have enough agencies working together? So I think we do. I, I think that if you look at uh, the, the level of collaboration and the communication that takes place uh, across agencies at the interagency level, it's much better. It's hands down better than it was uh, before the creation of DHS. It, the Department of Homeland Security is still a, it's still a very young department, uh, you know, relatively speaking to all the others. And, and we're, uh, you know, we're learning lessons and we're getting better every single day. I think that uh, if you look at the collaboration that takes place, if you look at the uh, the joint operations, the there's no denying that we are better off today than we were uh, 20 years ago. And I think it's only going to improve. I think the main thing is, is to, uh, is to keep learning lessons and to keep refining and, and getting better uh, every chance we every chance we can. I think that's a generational issue where, you know, I can tell you coming from the department of justice and INS, whenever I was uh, starting off in the border patrol, there were, of course, there's issues where everybody likes their home team and everybody wants to, uh, to see see their home team win, and as the uh, the people come in nowadays, you have people that uh, you know that have joined the Department of Homeland Security, have joined CBP, and that's all they know. There there is no legacy agency, and and so from a generational perspective, uh, that problem will resolve itself because now it becomes one CBP. It becomes that shared conscious that the acting secretary likes to talk about. I think uh, you look at it from that that perspective. You have to cut the uh, the men and women of the department uh, a break, and you have to understand that, yes, the, 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 it's much better off than we were 20 years ago, and we continue to get better every single day. I'm, I'm glad that the choice was made to stand up the department. I think that the country is overall safer for it. I think it's just shed light on just how daunting and complex the overall mission is. Yep. Yeah, they always joke uh, to be DHS secretary, you have time to uh, eat, go to the bathroom, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> Uh, yep. <laughs> because it just everything uh, falls under that. It's a huge country. Um, just real briefly, just uh, looking at a couple things here, because 
just before we got on the air, I got this data from CBP. I'm grateful that they actually looked it up for me. Um, the northern data apprehensions. So it looks like Detroit and um, Swanton, it's in New York, are the two busiest relatively, you know, the, at least the ones we catch. Is there a reason for that? Is that just landmass? So they, that has to do with the adversary and those that are, that are coming across illegally. If they see those areas as the place for greatest potential success, that's where they're going to, uh, they're going to cross. And that, that can have to do with a lot of factors. And this is, you see the same thing on the southwest border as well. If you have good infrastructure on the other side of the border that allows them to get to the border, if you have that network that facilitates their, their crossing, if you have good points of contact inside our country to get them from the border to their areas of destination, they look at all those things and they and they make the decision where are they going to attempt to cross illegally. And if right now they see the most advantageous areas as Swanton and Detroit, then that's where they're going to be uh, trying. And if we put pressure on those areas, then of course they'll shift to uh, to a different location. Sure thing. No, I mean that that makes sense. And uh, uh, that's that's just what I was wondering because on the southern border, I know each one tells its own story. The type coming over, the reasons they're coming over. I've heard a lot of news recently that there's been a trend the last number of years of Romanian gypsies coming in the northern border. Are you, are you seeing that where you are? Not so much here in uh, in, in Holton sector. It's uh, Swanton sector has seen, uh, uh, I think, more of that trend. And I'd, I'd let uh, uh, I'd let the chief over there kind of comment on that. But I would say that, uh, you know, it. Just because you know a particular type of the immigration population is coming across one area does not does not mean that that is exclusive to that area. What you I mean you may see that trend for a little while and then it'll shift to something else. I can tell you, in uh, in Laredo, for example, uh, you know there was a a large number of uh, Bangladeshi nationals that were coming across whenever I was down there, and, and that will shift over time for for a myriad of reasons. So just because you'll see the Romanian nationals coming across in Swanton now. You shouldn't paint Swanton sector or any sector with that one brush because it's an overall very complex threat that's being faced, and we have to be ready for all threats coming at us in each and every sector. I'm glad you mentioned the Bangladeshis. We reported on it last year, and I yeah, come to think of it, I guess you were the acting sector chief at the time. Um, I know Jay Johnson wrote a memo. He was DHS secretary in 2016. He wrote a memo back then uh, expressing his concern about SIAs and the need for uh, joint coordination of all law enforcement to stem that tide. So are you seeing an upward uh, trajectory in, in Middle Easterners coming to the northern border? No, I don't think any more than, uh, than we've seen, certainly not in, in, the, in the Holton sector right now. I think mm-hmm. that the, just the, the overall upward trend in the volume itself is what we're more focused on right now because of what that, uh, the implications are. If, uh, if it's the type of population that are coming uh, as family units, then it impacts our border security because it, it pulls our law enforcement agents and officers away from the patrol duties to, to deal with that population. If it's a, uh, if it's a, a large number of aliens or folks from special interest c- countries that are coming across, uh, then the question becomes, okay, do we have adequate border security to deny their ability to exploit the uh, the, the, the vulnerabilities that we have. So I think uh, right now we're more focused on the sheer volume that's uh, across the board that we're seeing from uh, that's increased and not so much one specific population. Right now, the family units are the ones that are that are of biggest concern because it's the biggest draw on our resources. Sure. And, and just to close this out, 
obviously, you know, all of us have spoken a lot about the obvious glaring loopholes in our policies uh, that allow this to continue on the southern border. And certainly it does draw away 10 to 15 percent of resources, like you said, from your shop um, in the northern border, which makes the already limited resources uh, more scarce and makes makes us more vulnerable at the northern border. But what would you say are two or three things that you think we should be doing more that are unique to the northern border? Or maritime borders. Well, I, I think that uh, greater attention needs to be paid. I think uh, the American people need to know the vulnerabilities that exist. You have to keep in mind, uh, from a historical perspective, uh, the most troubling of uh, illegal immigration that has has come across. Uh, there's been quite a few that have come across from the from the northern border. I think uh, having those partnerships and paying attention to the uh, the immigration laws that exist that can be exploited. I think uh, including all of that into the conversation and not just focusing on the southwest border behooves us all. I think you have to look at border security and national security uh, for this country holistically. I think you have to take all of it into consideration so that when we talk about uh, the need for more resources, when we talk about the need for more personnel or the type of resource that we're asking for, whether it be a physical barrier, whether it be technology, uh, then it becomes more apparent uh, the why and is it necessary. I think until you consider all that that entails, the northern border, the coastal border, our territories, you consider the southwest border, you can't really answer that question from an educated standpoint. You have to know that at the end of the day, if you want to be safe, your law enforcement officers have to have the advantage against the criminals. And that's what it takes to give it to them. That is the question. Do we have the advantage or not? Um Thank you so much, Chief Owens, for joining us. Our listeners could follow you at J Owens USBP on Twitter. This is the tweeting Border Patrol agent. It's pretty prolific there, so you definitely want to follow uh, follow him. We will link to that in our show notes. Look, I really look forward to having you back again. I know you've given us a tremendous amount of time. I have so many more questions we'll have to save for later, um, and I w- I do plan on taking you up on that offer. Look, I would much rather go on snowmobiles than deal with the rattlesnakes and the cactus plants and all that stuff in the South. Me too. Me too. Well, thanks so much for everything you do, keeping this country safe. Um, Really appreciate it. There you have it, folks. Chief Jason Owens, the chief sector patrol agent in the Holton sector of Maine. And uh, let me know what other questions you have of him um, that maybe I could ask him off there, have him on next time. Maybe if I ever do... uh, build up a budget to go to the northern border, although I should probably go to the southern border first because, again, that is a more imminent and comprehensive threat. This is a long-term looming threat, Um, certainly, as he mentioned, the quality of those coming over, although certainly the quality of those coming over the southern border are problematic too. But you know, his main point is we don't know what we don't know. There's not enough attention. Um, So, look, drop me a note. He was obviously very generous with his time. You have to realize that Often we have a lot of uh, people with impressive careers on this show who speak openly about a lot of things. This is really the first time I've had a sitting uh, Border Patrol agent, uh, you know, including a um, sector chief who's who's not a union member either. And, you know, it's not so easy to, to get those. Um, and it was certainly very generous of him to be willing to do that um, as a sitting sector chief to come on a show like this that's not a traditional outlet and new media 
um, to really talk in depth. And I'm just very grateful to Chief Owens. I mean, you look broadly at what's happening here. And some of it, at the end of the day, does get back to the military. You can't expect a Border Patrol to do all this. And there is a reason we have a military. And I think if we would have invested a fraction of the trillions of dollars we invested in the nation building overseas, I think some of these looming threats uh, would have been addressed a long time ago with the resources we do have. And and that does get back to, to Nor- NORTHCOM. I mean, that's really what they need to be doing. I have an article out today. It just came out. Army's response to incident with Mexican soldiers. Send cooks and lawyers. Remember, last week we spent a good part of the week talking about what happened with the Mexican soldiers detaining and disarming two of our active duty military north of the borderline, and nothing was done about that. They weren't asked to apologize. We didn't draw any line in the sand. The president promised armed soldiers, and it was in all caps, by the way. Uh, He promised on Twitter, and we warned that, well, we need a fighter, not a blogger. Twitter is not a policy outcome. Well, I mean, we see that again. LA Times reports that the Pentagon is is moving to loosen the rules that bar U.S. soldiers from interacting with migrants on the southern border. So I read the article, and I thought, oh, my gosh, oh, they're taking the gloves off. No, they're expending their political capital in the military on further marshalling the military into lawfare, into the processing, doing what the Border Patrol is doing. They're sending cooks and lawyers to help, what is this? Help agents, quote, process migrants, drivers to help transport detained migrants, and cooks to provide meals for them. So there is a border surge, a military surge of cooks and lawyers and, and bus drivers. I mean, look, I get the point of, oh, freeing them up, freeing up the agents, but the agents are taking the gloves off because they're not allowed to. Like we established last week, they can't even nab a, a cartel smuggler with an AK-47 who stepped over our border, but this second he's six inches over, they won't grab him. So what is the point of freeing them up if they're also going to be doing this? To me, the point is, look, you got to end the immigration policies, which we've given 11 ideas for that. But if you're not going to do that and they're going to continue the catch and release, at least free the military up to deal with the cartels, the belligerents. Instead, they're having them both deal with the lawfare. And ironically, the Trump administration is taking hits on posse comitatus, people are criticizing, oh, you're having them do immigration work. Ironically, they'd be on, on sounder legal ground if they do what I'm suggesting, which is quintessentially the job of the military, which is to repel an invasion. So look, if you're not going to get tough on the illegal immigrants, at least have the military get tough on the cartels. But no, they're not doing that. So this is, this is pretty um, astounding. Essentially, as Colonel Dan Steiner told me, we had him on the show last week, the military attempted to answer a logistical issue for Border Patrol, but not the tactical issue of force protection for our military arising from the incident that took place last week, or it was two weeks ago, it was reported last week. He told me, I'm not sure how sending extra lawyers, extra drivers, and extra cooks addresses the issue of preventing the next confusion incident with Mexican soldiers or the cartels. So there you have it. It's time 
to make the homeland the consummate national security, national defense issue in all its ways. We need to think of the milita- of the border as being on war fit- footing every bit, if not more, certainly more, than we view the perimeter of Kabul or Raqqa. Anyway, send me your comments, concerns, and questions at rmconservative. Email me, dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Thank you.